So today we begin with the um, next section of our uh, presentation and the center of our discussion today, the focus of our discussion will be on the principle of dialogue. Um, we can look behind us for a moment because the first day we had introduced uh, the concept of a tree where we said that uh, first of all we're dealing with the personal faith and the roots of that faith have to be in have to be in connection with the reservoir of pleasure or at least reaching out to it in the drawing they were tapping into that that is a little high level for most of us it's more on the reaching out level um, we had Prabhupada as the connection and our personal faith was uh, was our basis for uh, functioning in ISKCON uh, and also for dialogue so we put a lot of discussion on, uh, we had a lot of discussion on this aspect of personal faith in the last few days and uh, well one of the principles that came up in that aspect was that uh, Prabhupada said not just blind faith which means not just a sentiment but there must be philosophy right? so uh, as the week has been going by, you know, here and there, there uh, I've had some interaction with the students and I'm getting some feedback. Uh, and uh, several people are feeling like, well, you know, is it that we are like trying to bring out all kinds of doubts, you know, and then kind of knock these doubts on the head and then, uh, then we are one step ahead in our faith. Uh, I don't know if that's really um, necessarily what we were doing. Uh, I think what we were doing was basically uh, seeing what our faith, faith rests on. Okay? And that uh, the first principle was that by nature we are pleasure seeking. And therefore, that if we are in a situation that doesn't give us pleasure okay, but we are enduring that situation because uh, because we think Krishna wants it right then we need quite some philosophy to uh, to help us to keep on enduring it it's easy to have faith in other words when you're in a nice situation but when the situation is not nice Right? then gradually that faith will crumble unless there is philosophy with it to deal with the unpleasant experience because by nature nobody wants an unpleasant experience it's against our nature so therefore the philosophy especially becomes important uh, when life gets austere that's when philosophy you can see Arjuna really needed philosophy when he, when he had a crisis then he needed it more than ever Right? And, and once he had that philosophy, he changed his whole vision of what was going on there, and suddenly it looked totally different. So, uh, in this way, we need the 
So blind faith will not work. So I guess uh, that's more what I was trying to do with personal faith right, than to dig up doubts. In fact, I mentioned a statement by Trivikram Maharaj who said that rather than uh, dwelling on my doubts, I'm dwelling on my faults and I'm trying to uh, purify myself from lust, greed, and all these kind of things. Right? So uh, the aim was certainly not to dwell on doubts and that one should uh, think that uh, we should do some big introspection. Do I have any? No, I don't. Um, should I, I, I maybe start having some? You know, am I missing some? Uh, and that uh, we come out of this seminar like, you know, my God, you know, I never thought about all these things, but now that we start to think about it, yes, you know, uh, you know, March told that joke of the, of the light bulb and, uh, you know, how many to change a light bulb, etc. And thinking about this, you know, like, gee, uh, yeah, etc. So that's not the purpose of this, this uh, exercise on personal faith. It was to strengthen our faith, uh, get a more philosophical outlook on it, next to our natural faith, which we already have, otherwise we wouldn't have joined the Hare Krishna movement, so it's obvious that we all have faith, right? but to strengthen it uh, so that we can deal with the natural difficulties that come up in life in general, you know, what do you do when, uh, when your dear and beloved one uh, dies right next to you, right? Like it happened to... Uh, to the devotees who were Tamal Krishnamarch in the car last year, what is the name again, uh, uh, from the president? Huh? I can't hear it. Kalasambar, thank you. Kalasambar, right, yeah, Kalasambar, you know, the suddenly, boom, wife gone, you know, then he was like uh, shocked, but he was very Krishna conscious, right, because he went through the whole experience right there and then and he spoke right there and then to all the devotees from his heart you know which was like not, it's not so easy when you're in the middle of it it's easy one week later right or three months later but as he was like you know as, as some devotees were going through the um, ceremony for Tamal Krishna March meanwhile they had another ceremony to burn the body of, of, of his wife and, then we all came together in the temple and he spoke, right? just like that. I just met him again in Vrindavan, actually. And, uh, yeah, very Krishna conscious. Yeah? So, he obviously had some realizations of the philosophy, otherwise at that moment uh, he would have been shaking in his boots, yeah, for sure. So in this way, philosophy is very important. Um, then we spoke about ISKCON. I mean, we can have strong faith ourselves, but uh, how to relate to ISKCON. So for that we had the model of ISKCON in three layers where we could see that, well, uh, at least two of these layers are totally unaffected by whatever happens on the external portion and from going deep into those we can contribute to the top layer and that is actually our service. That is our service. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And we said, put the perfect process in the center, then uh, the chant, hearing and chanting. If that's more in the center in Iskran, then we are, uh, uh, then we have more opportunity for a healthy society. So these were some of like the 
underlying principles and concepts of what we uh, have been uh, focusing on in the last days and what our aims and objectives have been in, in the course. Right. Uh, today, in, in the dialogue, um, I cannot teach you uh, techniques of dialogue right, because I'm not so trained in that. I have my own style of dialogue and it works right, for me, but I don't think other people could necessarily imitate it, you know, some maybe. Um, I have a, quite an individual style and that's just uh, uh, how I do it. But certain things obviously are there uh, that certain common principles are also there in the way I am uh, presenting my dialogue. Uh, anyway, you've learned a lot already in this course of how to dialogue, right? so I'm not, definitely not going to tell you that. So, in my manual, I have uh, at section four we're looking for um, dialogue, and uh, yeah, we'll have to listen, so we don't have an extra one. Um, here in this section, it starts on page 73, um, the first few pages are dedicated to faith on common ground with disbelief. Right? This is a little model which has actually been developed by Bhakti Rukhir, who was helping me a little. And uh, it... Uh, it is, a, it is a basic ground for dialogue with, uh, I would say, atheistic people who are more uh, academically inclined. Right? These three premises, primacy of consciousness, language as a vehicle of thought, human beings are by nature idealists, could be commonly agreed on. And once that's there, then you have quite a, a framework for introducing Krishna consciousness. So, so that's all it is, really. Um, it is explained here in the text, and I'm not going to uh, really explain it now. The text is quite clear, uh, but you know what it is. It is basically uh, a technique for opening, uh, opening a, a a forum where Krishna consciousness can easily be introduced because once consciousness is kind of, 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 of uh, recognized, okay, then we can speak about different types of consciousness. When idealism is there, which relates to the pleasure-seeking aspect, okay, then we can obviously uh, link one and three together and say that consciousness should be ideal consciousness so then you know what is ideal consciousness we're already getting there uh, okay uh, like that it's a, there, there's plenty of ways one can can use a little model like that and if you do a university program you could base a lecture on such a model one could try that and uh, or one could retreat to such a model. You know, if one is like, if you encounter in in some uh, discussion too much of an antagonistic uh, atmosphere, then you could just say, okay, 
well, let's go back to basics. You know, it says like before we get into this discussion, let us just first establish the common ground. Okay, then that's established. Then at least you're out of the atmosphere of debate. Then it's only uh, at least there's common ground. So it opens up the door to get out of debate. And sometimes it's really necessary in these uh, academic circles. Of course, I find myself there is a big difference in preaching to students or uh, or professors. A big, big difference. And oftentimes, I concentrate on the students because preaching to professors is a very slow process. And like you know, it's like uh, the best you can do is cultivate some, is cultivate them and get some sort of friendship and. You know, and make them see that you're not a total nitwit, which they can appreciate. And for the rest, uh, and and for the rest, you have to recognize that they are brilliant, right? And if uh, which they are, you know, and they they want you to do a little puja to them, and then they are totally satisfied. They, you know, if you're intelligent enough to recognize their glories, usually that's that's the best way to preach to them. No, but I'm sure if you are more qualified, like a Sadaputa or somebody like that, then you can actually give him something to chew on, right? But for us to give a professor something to chew on, uh, beware, you know. I mean, one time uh, I used Satyarach's reincarnation book, and there's this session about the reincarnation uh, um, testimonies, which is a research done by Ian Stevenson, you know, and I was speaking a little about this work of Ian Stevenson and all quoting Satyarach's book left and right, you know, and I thought it sounded really impressive. And these two professors, they just jumped on me, jumped on me. One had written a book on it, an expose on it, and the guy was like an encyclopedia on the topic, you know, <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, uh, you know, it was just, oh, boy. <laughs> it was, uh, and then another one came from the other side and chopped it. I mean, I had to just say, well, anyway, okay, I admit, this is more your field and not so much mine, you know. Like, so this, okay, this point's for you. That was a lost round, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I got him in another round, but this one was lost. Yeah. So, uh, oftentimes, I think the, the dialogue with students is much more open. But still, students are trained in critical thinking, just like all of you. So, you know, but they get trained much longer. Not in, uh, I mean, you may uh, uh, get like a quick introduction in what critical thinking is, but a student, uh, right, is being drilled in this mode of thinking for years and years until it's like become part of his, of his nature, his second nature. So, you know, they are going to think very critically of what we say. So therefore, uh, even for students, one has to uh, really underbuild what he is presenting uh, quite nicely. So models like that can, of common ground can be useful at times when the atmosphere is antagonistic. If the atmosphere is not antagonistic, I would not bother with such premises. You know. I would only like then I would go, you know, go forward and see if there's some, if there's some acceptance. Great. I mean, sometimes, you know, you have to be in, in, in preaching in universities, you have to be very careful that you don't get stuck on a level which is too low. You know, like for example, if you introduce something like karma in a lecture in a university, it can happen that 
you never get beyond karma. You practically don't get to Krishna because they just start such a debate about karma. All the time is used up. So you've got to be very careful you don't introduce too much stuff where they can attack and debate right? so that you can't uh, really present what you really want to say. Because really, like karma, it's all right, but it's not like our main message. You know, it's still... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a secondary issue, right? So sometimes you've got to be very careful in a strategy that you don't introduce all kinds of secondary issues when uh, the uh, prime, primary issues are the ones you really want to deal with. So um, I usually am blunt and just uh, chalk out some primary issues because if, if there's a debate, at least it's on primary things, you know, things that I want to talk about and not stuff I don't want to talk about. Anyway, that, those are just some experiences I have from uh, universities. Depends a little bit in which country you are, you know, like uh, here in, um, well, uh, Belgium, uh, medium soft audience, Holland, more fiery off, uh, fiery uh, audience, uh, south of Holland, uh, Christian, you know, Christian and critical thinkers, right? Uh, they are like uh, quite antagonistic. Uh, Utrecht, soft as butter, you know, Amsterdam, uh, critical and materialistic, uh, Leiden, super uh, arrogant, you know, uh, Groningen, uh, very open uh, and nice like that. I can uh, I have my experiences here in this yatra in the universities. Um, whatever it may be. Uh, so one should uh, read the audience a bit, and if you get like a lot of antagonism, yes, it can be useful to uh, withdraw and talk the ground, common ground, establish a common ground. Um, then um, I had uh, a number of uh, of points that. Uh, We started on this point of uh, Apurusea. Uh, I, w I have dedicated a couple of pages to it uh, because not so much that I want us to study it now, but basically Apurusea means that the scriptures are uh, not produced by man, but transcendental. And the reason why I gave this proof here is because it's a, it's a very sensitive point. In academic circles, it's totally uh, unacceptable. They hit the roof if you even hint it, you know. The older hairs like, like, uh, are standing in their necks and uh, on end, right? And uh, they, their claws come out and they're ready to pounce on you, right? So therefore, uh, it's, uh, if it's good to uh, to kind of know this stuff you know, when you go into dialogue to kind of have studied this Apurusea thing nicely. That's why I put it in, so that we can be prepared there in case we have to defend, defend this point of view and explain it solidly. Because unless you can explain it, you look like uh, a fanatic. Now, this is a point that in uh, dialogue, right, rather than just putting down big statements, right? it is better to explain 
and let the statement come come in a natural way out of the explanation, like a conclusion. Then it comes across, uh, you know, like, well, with logic, and you come across like a very reasonable person. Right? If you just say the scriptures are apurasaya, or a divine revelation, you know, like, then half of the people already close their, uh, their receivers, you know. And it's, uh, here we go again. And uh, we, they really, they have a, they mentally block their ears at that point. They can't hear anymore. Therefore, it's better to just begin a logical explanation and then put down the conclusion you know, in these things, rather than to first put down the conclusion and then to kind of go for an explanation. Uh, because can, people are prejudiced, right? So they are already all their mental blocks are going up, all their aggression is going up, and all along throughout your explanation, they're not listening, they're already attacking in the attack mode, right? And you say, no, I'll introduce the topic, just bear with me, you know, have, have a few minutes of, of patience to go through the, through the full explanation, and when I come to the conclusion, we'll open it up for discussion, all right? So it's like that, you educate your audience, and you made it clear, you know, we're going to this. So it's like, take charge of the audience. Don't just let, don't just be there in front of these people and are they going to accept what, what I'm going to say. No, no, no. We're going to do this now, okay? Yeah, well, this is what we're going to do. Agreed? Yeah. So you make an, of course, you can't just order them around. You have to make a pact with them. So, you know, look, I'm going to take five minutes to explain this and this point. So, you know, until that time, please listen to it. Otherwise, I can't get it across, okay? Okay? Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. Thank you. Now you got, they gave you five minutes, right? They're going to be quiet for five minutes. They're not going to attack you for these five minutes. And you're going to go through the whole thing, yeah? through the whole explanation, and there, boom, there is your conclusion. Yeah? Again, you know, I'm, I'm, this is not, I'm not speaking from theory. I'm speaking from having been attacked many times. <laughs> and from having, having made the mistake of putting the statement first, you know, and then the explanation. I mean, I from I've been, and then I never get the chance to, to go through the explanation, right? Because like they were all like up in arms about the point I was I was presenting. Right? So I've I've learned now, not to do this anymore. So that's I thought I'd just share with you. Um, I want to go to uh, page eighty, um, which is some controversial points. Uh, page 80, 80. <coughs> hmm. So, I'll read it. By dwelling again and again on controversy, we may assign certain points more importance than they ever actually have in the bigger picture of Krishna consciousness. And we, and we may neglect the more fundamental elements of the philosophy. That's just the preface. And, you know, we should be careful in our preaching, right, that we are, we're always putting forward the, 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 the controversial points, right, and in the end, you know, we make them big issues, and they may not be such big issues, actually, maybe only side issues, really, right? I mean, whether you went to the moon or not, big deal, who cares, you know, I mean, how often do we speak about that, you know? Every once in a while, to crack a joke, you know, that's all. The moon's made of green cheese or something foolish, you know. Uh, 
who cares about the moon? Most of us don't. I don't. Not very much. Those who are into astrology care about the moon a bit, you know. I don't. Let that moon be whatever it is. So, the first the preface here is, is just a general principle to remember for us that we should not just sink deep into the controversies and just think, yes, now we're getting into some core issues. No, we're not getting, but in dialogue they have significance. So, therefore, we're bringing them out here. Hey, fundamental issues. Nonetheless, some doubts may be raised about the very fundamental points themselves. One, achintya, inconceivable. Well, you know, well, you know, <laughs> here we go, right? We're explaining, and then uh, it's getting the ground's getting really hot, and then we go, achintya. <laughs> it's all, yeah, Krishna's inconceivable. Right? I mean, people said this, you know, I mean, come on, this is a cop-out. It stinks, right? It's like, uh, I mean, if this achintya thing, is uh, if you would pull it out like that, right, would be very hard to accept for people. So we'd have to really explain how logically he must be a chincha. It's not even that we say yes, well, he's also a chincha. No, no, we have to. In this case, I would advise to make it an issue, right? So, you know, if, you, if if you want to deal with this point for some reason, if I would deal with this point a chincha, I would not just sort of say, well suddenly pull it out, here's a chinch, you know, I would say like, you know, he must be inconceivable. It's, it's, it's obvious right? that, that this is the case. Because, you know, like how can... It is, it is very, very clear that we cannot conceive of the total of existence. Right? Already within the universe, right, there is so much that we don't know. So much like our... our Machines, etc., extend our sensual functions, but very limited. So these are all, you have to prove it, in other words. Prove it that the limitation of our ability to perceive, and then we have to prove the limitations of the brain. Yeah? You can, uh, you could use uh, uh, the Weizenbaum uh, example in here, the computer as an idol, if you have read it. It's a good, uh, good article about uh, um, how religion is a, or how science is a religion. It says science is a religion because it has all the same things of religion that religion has. It has its, its practices, its, its, its uh, beliefs, its canons, its high priests, its, uh, it has its institutes, it has its uh, scriptures, you know, and it has its... Uh, but for long it was lacking a deity. Right? And so you may say, like, well, you know, but when the computer came in, that became the perfect deity because the computer, in one sense, is superior to man. Right? Computers can think better than human beings. Computers can do things we cannot do. Right? Much faster, much better, much sharper. We make mistakes where computers don't, you know. Right? Of course, computers can also make mistakes where human beings don't. But anyway, there is a there is an element of superiority, obviously, in computers. And I mean, if you go supercomputers, you know, like which are used by the Pentagon or something like that, I mean, or by universities, you're talking about computers, you know, like, I mean, right? Uh, thinking at lightning speed, right? 
uh, you know, you can read these science fiction stories, and they had just made the link between all the intergalaxial computers, and they had this ceremony, and they pulled the handle, right, of to turn it all on, and the system was working, and they asked a question, and they asked the computer, is there a God? And the answer that came said, at last there is. Right. And one man ran for the for the handle to turn it off, and a lightning bolt came from the sky and just whoosh. Anyway, something like that. Uh, but the uh, yeah, the the achinch, uh, uh, element is there. Um, yes, we are all sp speculating. Right? We are speculating. Uh, there's the story. Six blind men encountered an elephant for the first time in their life. One was touching a leg and said, an elephant is like a tree. Another was holding the tail and disagreed. No, an elephant is like a rope. A third one touched the trunk and thought the elephant was like a snake and so on. According to the part of the body they were in contact with, they developed a certain idea about what an elephant actually is. So we are all doing this, right? The whole science is doing this. The whole world is doing this. This is what we're doing with reality. We don't know. So it's just the blind man with the elephant. We still don't know what the elephant is. And, and that's why every time our theories are changing. One time we have the leg, another time the tail. And it's, right? This whole theory was wrong. An elephant is not like a tree. I tell you, it's like a rope. Yes, it is, it is. Yes, we've now here. It can be verified. You feel, yes, it's like a rope. But then they catch the trunk and then you go, no, it's like a snake. You're not like a snake. Yeah. No proof proves that an elephant is like a snake. Right? And like this, it goes on and on and on. No. So that's obviously a, a nice little example, simple analogy, nice entertaining story which supports the Achincha idea. Um, as you can see, I always entertain a little bit. It, uh, it helps to take things uh, out of the uh, aggressive atmosphere, right? uh, if you do that. Right? In ISKCON it helps to take it out of the sleepy atmosphere, but with an uh, audience that is cold, right? that has no faith, that is like cold and thinking critical and suspicious, it can kind of break the ice a bit, you know, so uh, therefore a little anecdote, uh, you know, linking all the computers and, you know, stuff like that helps. Um, okay, I don't want to read everything, but this Achincha principle is something uh, that is a difficult part in our philosophy for outsiders to, uh, who are intelligent to just accept. Right? So we should know that when it comes to the point that we have to use it, that we have that we better introduce it with logic and argument first, and then put it down there because it's a controversial point if you if you touch upon it. Uh, well, another one is the famous Harinam verse: Harinama, 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 Eva Kevalam, Kalunasteva, Nasteva, Katiranita. Uh, you know. It basically turns us into fanatics, right? We say that Hare Krishna is the only way, and there is no other way, no other way, no other way. We say it three times. I mean, we are like total fanatics, and uh, 
that is very much, in, in many ways, our public, in, uh, public image, you know. And it used to be mine also. I mean, Dam Square in Amsterdam, and you see, I saw those Hare Krishnas, right, and the Brahmacharis, you know, they all think, well, we're on the Hare Nam, it's got to be fired up, you know, otherwise, you know, the people don't, uh, don't think it's fired up. So there they are, you know, in a little circle, right, there's a little circle, and it goes, and you look at it, you know, and you just think, like, my God, you know. My God, these guys. It's a trance dance, right? <laughs> it's a trance dance, you know. They are total fanatics, brainwashed. Look at them, look at them. I used to think, you know. Yeah? Look at them, you know. I mean, this is not human anymore. It is not human. I still think it's not human, actually speaking. But anyway, um, it's fired up, I understand. Uh, whatever it is, um, that was like, uh, the, that's your first impression, right? So you get already a very fanatic idea, and then they walk around in these funny clothes in a modern society, you know, totally like, like uh, out of touch with reality, right? Like living in their own bubble, you know? Like uh, this, uh, when it's written in the book, the Hare Krishna, the SMU, that Tamal Krishna, which was introduced by his professor there, <laughs> as a living time time warp, right? A living time warp, you know, something that somehow or other still exists, right? Because, I mean, it shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't, but here it is, you know, here, look at it, you know, here it is. And all the students like, yeah, look at it, you know. So people have this idea about us that we are totally uh, extreme in one sense, you know, I mean. Um, and people, and therefore, uh, we're always good for, for a laugh, you know, on some TV. People in the panel, right? And he begins right there to give a whole psychological analysis how each one of them is like totally psychologically cut up and for that reason in this strange act, you know. I mean, bang, right? Nasty, nasty trick, right? But like, they do stuff like that. So, uh, um, so they, because they like to depict us like that because there is some sort there's something living out there as like they're just a bunch of weirdos you know and, and it's hard to to overcome that and we come up i mean and amongst new religions sex cults whatever uh it's all the same for them uh, we are known as the most fanatic right one of the most fanatic ones not only because of our Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, and not only because of the outlandish dress that we're wearing, but the most fanatic because, you know, our four regulated principles, especially that one, you know, that one principle, which is like, you know, in the Dutch TV, they always ask you, you know, how are you doing it, you know, you're like, like Brahm, you know, you never feel like uh, attracted to a girl, you know. <laughs> He's good at it. What, uh, what, what do you say? You, ne you never feel attracted to a girl? So then, you know, I mean, why are you walking around like so young and uh, kind of a handsome young, uh, young fellow like you, you know? Right? I mean, you know, don't you want to have some fun in life? What do you do for fun? How do you find your satisfaction within? See Brahm's face, you know, he looks very cool when he's in this mode, you know. Now he's playing it, but when he's on in front of the camera, he's totally cool. Yeah, 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 
It's like, it's not like, oh, well, <laughs> what question was that, you know? No, and therefore, he's very good at this stuff because he doesn't get an anxiety. Right? He's kind of, he stays relaxed. He's like, got that kind of arrogant little uh, thing, which he, <laughs> and uh, kind of like real relaxed thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Got it? Or shall I repeat it, maybe? Which is a good approach. Anyway, thanks for that. Um, so we have this uh, image, right, of being dogmatic sectarian, and here we and we have and here when, okay, we have it because of our looks, we have it because of the illicit sex thing, and we explain all that. But then when it boils down to it, right, finally we come with the real substance. Uh, after all the all the external overreaction, we've dealt with it, we've settled it all, we've. Explain it all. No, we are serious. The celibacy is not just like that. It's spiritual practices. You know, it's not like we are the only ones. All spiritual traditions do such things. Da, 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 da. They've explained it all nicely. And then, yes, but what is the core of everything we're doing? Yes, chanting of Hare Krishna is the only way. Yeah? That's the it, you know. Totally fanatic, you see. On all levels, we are fanatic, you know. We're fanatic in our appearance, we're fanatic in our principles, and we're fanatic in our philosophy. We are fanatics, right? From a, we're dogmatic, right? From a, from a materialist point of view, we could be called dogmatic because of three levels, you know, our external appearance, so, uh, our, so world strange, right? Time warp, uh, or because of our, our principles, and finally, you know, if you go still one level deeper, our philosophy. Yeah. So, uh, well, Yadu, what do you think of that? What would you explain, I mean, like, uh, that we uh, are not dogmatic? I mean, I would say... Well, Yadu, when, when you go to the university, as, as you were saying, I avoid, like, because I don't want to be dogmatic. Yes. Yes, but today, Mr. Uh, what is your name again? Um, Yadu um, Ananda. Um, you know, we particularly would like to ask you to uh, explain this a little bit because we have really tried to understand your movement here in this class of comparative religion. And our conclusion is, is that your public appearance is very sectarian and dogmatic because you're not integrating in society, you're wearing outlandish clothes, Indian clothes in a Western uh, Western climate and you're totally cut off from the rest of society. Then you have principles about no sex, which, you know, is, is more than Victorian, we would say, and it's a very rigid, dogmatic approach to life. Finally, we have here you know, we said, well, okay, these are external matters. We go to the core of your philosophy and we come across this point that this uh, holy name is the only way. So could you please explain to us why your movement is not dogmatic? Okay. Of course, you, you mention many points. I'm the professor. You have to act as if you're on, on TV or, or something. Huh? Or, well, or in front of an audience, university audience. Okay. It is short time. You no, you are acting now. You're acting. Huh? 
You are in front of the university class now, so you're addressing professors and we are the university yeah. audience. Please give us a demonstration. I want you to act and to do the whole thing as if we are the students and the professor. Uh, yes. So, you have mentioned different points. But first, you, you, you mentioned about the way we dance. You want to use the flip chart? <laughs> the way we dress, well, I'm dressed like this because I am a monk. But most of the people who practice uh, this process, it's philosophy. They are not monks and, and they practice at home, professional people, students. So there is no need to change the external way of, of appearance to uh, to apply this, the principles we, we, we teach and we study in, this, in the scriptures and the philosophy. Uh, and regarding the, the chanting, it's very much emphasized because in, in all the ages, uh, spiritual is used to meditate, which is difficult to practice nowadays because of the modern times like in the cities. Uh, like if you try to meditate, you know, a lot of noise many times, people is very much in stress. So the chanting is a process very much recommended, very general, that any person can apply it in his or her life. I can, and can experience in practical results on a personal level. Okay, uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Yadu. That, uh, that, that clarifies a little bit, uh, but you see, our students have been studying this subject uh, in depth and uh, I'm sure they would uh, have some uh, some questions on this point. Okay, let's yeah. yeah. yeah, about this um, regulated principle about unhappiness and Yes, the, the topic of sex, like, we, we are looking for higher pleasure. Sex is the is the topmost pleasure, or we could say for most of the people, is the topmost pleasure in life, isn't it? So, uh, if like, we, we draw from our internal experience, spiritual experience is offers a, a topmost pleasure, and it's like if person has iron, and you offer him God. So, what should the person do? Take them both. Take them both. Take them both. Everyone that? Yeah? Well, no. I mean, you. you you can argue against that because you can say, well, I take gold in both my hands. I take as much gold as I can get, and then my, I can carry only so much, so I carry only gold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every pocket, I carry gold. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, that's basically the, the idea. So, similarly, to attain a higher pleasure, we are not artificially abandoning 
sex life. Mr. Yadu, uh, you're saying that uh, this celibacy is part of your spiritual practices. Uh, it's, yes. Yes. Now, you are... It's part of the spiritual practices, and it's also a consequence. Okay. Okay. I would like to ask the question. Um, I was prefacing my question, really. Um, I was, we have looked at your literatures, you know, uh, written uh, that you've published by your society. And we find in there that uh, you're not only prescribing celibacy for monks, but we're finding you're prescribing celibacy for all members of society. Now, do you really think, I mean, honestly speaking, tell me honestly, honestly, do you think that's realistic? Well, do you mean... Uh, uh, Sex, sex life within marriage. I mean, like, sex life in society in general. Your kind of your your books are clearly speaking out that it is that it has an an agenda for the world to give up sex, basically. Uh, not not really. Like we are offering a process for those persons who want to grow spiritually yeah. and experience a higher taste in life. We are offering a process. For that. But you're saying and, you have a solution for like the world. We know we are very realistic. Most of people in society, they get married and they have sex life within, within marriage. But then, according to your books, right, you say only for procreation. Uh, now, yes. Isn't that totally... But and not only that, right, it says no more than once a month. Mr. Yadu, I mean... Do you think that's realistic? That's a program for the world to to solve the problems in the world? You think that will work? Our spiritual master said regarding to that once they asked him about it. And he said, first you follow within marriage, then we can talk about other things. Like, but but I'm asking in a broader sense, see? I'm asking like, is this is your teaching the teaching for humanity at large, or is your teaching meant for like a particular small ecclesi ecclesi ecclesiastical group that is kind of, uh, right, making its contribution to society, uh, that's well. But is there another program for society at large? Or are you saying this is it? The, the teaching is for humanity at large. Then how can it can and, it be practical? The, our process is it's not to prohibit, but our process is to offer something better. And then naturally, when a person has gold, naturally can drop iron. It's not artificial. So that's why we offer the process of chanting. Because when a person practices the chanting, Chanting the names of God, the process of meditation, can experience a higher taste in life, and naturally can follow other other prescriptions with chanting. Okay, join the club. Come on. I mean, I've, I've, I think I've started it. Now you get, give him some heat. Wake up. Everybody wake up. Give it to him.
spiritual life is a matter of, of personal choice. In the sense that each person decides to what level wants to wants to apply himself or herself. So we are offering a process and the deeper a person goes into the process, the higher experiences can can achieve. I'll need to scratch that. Emphasize it, emphasize. Um, Dr. Brown. This is the only way. Your your book says it's the only way. I mean, you know, like we have it right here on your end. What is the only way? It says your chanting is the only way, and your principles are the only way, 
and everything else is condemned. So doesn't that make you like cultish and sectarian? I mean, like like the, like like the text, this text you are quoting, Harer Nama, Harer Nama, Harer Nama, Ibakiyalam. Hari is the general name of God. Hari means God who frees from from uh, suffering. So we don't say we need to chant only the name of God in our tradition. We say also there are many names of God and each person can chant the name of God according to their own tradition. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, we could do it with anybody of you too <laughs> put you right there and now we are only in, a, in our own home right? acting it you know. but it can be really antagonistic like that and then you can see that I mean, Yadu was doing okay in terms of answers but it wasn't easy it was a, it was a difficult thing. You could see it was difficult. It wasn't like you know you're just nicely uh, standing there, easily explaining your point. It's a struggle. When 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 you insert, when you have such an atmosphere, the dialogue is a struggle. Right? There's no doubt about it. Right? And you can be the best speaker, but it's still a struggle. Right? You can uh, you can be more. Uh, light about it, or you can be very serious about it. You can again very soft-spoken, but when you have an antagonistic audience, right, who fires questions at you, it's like, uh, and they don't believe, and they don't want to believe, and they are like, it, it, it is a struggle, right? It is a struggle. Um, so we have to be not intimidated by this struggle; just struggle. Just go through it, accept it, okay, it's a struggle, no problem. And, uh, and you could also, just in the middle of the whole thing, say, yeah, well, you know, okay, this way, you know, we're not going very far, right? Because actually you don't have a very open mood, you know, towards dialogue, right? It says, like, every time, you know, when I'm trying to present a principle, you're already with a knife at my throat before I've even finished my sentence, practically speaking, right? Or even if you let me finish my sentence, you never let me fully develop a concept, right? Then how can we possibly understand? So you're actually not... Uh, you actually have a very uh, narrow-minded, dogmatic approach towards, uh, towards dialogue, right? We can turn the turn the turn the tide also around and just attack them for a change, you know, which uh, yeah uh, can add a little spice to the situation if you want some more excitement in life. Uh, anyway, the, this this dogmatic sectarian aspect of our movement is uh, it's a difficult thing that we are the only way. Now. Uh, of course, you know, uh, Prabhupada, right, uh, clearly has his his point on it, and the point is like, uh, no, I'm not, uh, I'm not dogmatic, you are dogmatic, because you are insisting that that the truth is whatever you think it is, that God is or is not, but you don't know, you don't know, right? you don't know. 
And he just challenges like that, and they don't know. It's the fact. They don't know. So this was, and Prabhupada did know. <laughs> That's what it was. So Prabhupada says, no, you don't know. I know, but you don't know. As simple as that. But turn it around. You are dogmatic because you're fixed about your idea and you actually don't know. But that we can give to people and we can, that could be also a premise. We can start with that, you know. Which is like uh, argumentum ad ignorantium, right? You are like basically uh, adding your your whole logic, your all ideas on, on hypotheses, on ideas that you actually don't know. What do, what do we really know? So sometimes I introduce uh, a discussion with that, the fact that we can't know anything. Yeah? So first take, take the audience to a five-minute session where I explain that you can't know anything, yeah? and they logically explain why, right? and that therefore you can know about something that is known to you, but the unknown, you don't know anything. So we're not talking about anything you know. We're talking about what is outside of the realm of what is known. We're not talking about cars, we're not talking about trees, we're not talking about birds, we're talking about uh, something that is beyond that. So this is the unknown. So if we have a discussion about the unknown, the only proper way to approach it is with, with an open mind, because we cannot have an opinion about it. So if anyone has an opinion about it, then he is, is prejudiced. Right? So if you establish that first, if anybody has an opinion about this unknown element that I'm introducing here, he's prejudiced. So we have to, we can neither, we cannot have any opinion about it, really, in real, because not about the unknown. Yes. So the Veda, so not me, but the Veda introduces many things that are unknown to us in the Western world. So when you preface like that, you know, you force them kind of in an, in an open-minded mood, right? Uh, at least you can refer back to it again and again and try and hold them in there. That can help. Yes, of course. Yeah. Prejudice and dogmatic. Um, yeah. A dogmatic person is prejudiced. He has, he has preconceived ideas. He's fixed in his own preconceived ideas. Yeah, yeah, and prejudice the same, preconceived ideas. Yeah, you have no proof. Yeah, you're dogmatic. You're holding on to a belief, you know, without any any proper argumentation. Just absolutely, this is it. And yeah, I know, but actually, you can't underbuild it. Um, okay, the third point I am bringing up here is that shastra is a divine revelation. Uh, um, academics will see Krishna consciousness as a particular religious belief which developed in a particular historical and cultural context. Right? Like, um, there is a book written by a Dutch professor, Kautert, it was used by Tamal Krishnamaraj, and it's called uh, I Have My Doubts. Right? And it's all a, a book about doubt. I have it upstairs. And uh, this book is just systematically going through doubt, 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 and, and more doubt. And uh, he is especially investigating the Christian belief. Right? But it's interesting because there are many, uh, yeah, many parallels. And uh, 
he brings out this point that there is the source and there is the stream. And the stream is not the source. And what is in the stream is not necessarily coming from the source. So therefore when you speak about a particular set of beliefs, you're talking about a tradition. You're not talking about a religion, this is it, a conviction. It is a, it is a stream, it is a growing, moving element, uh, yeah, entity right, which is going through its stages of development and it exists in different ways at different times. It's like obviously absorbing many things from many people and in this way it can contribute. And therefore to say that one of these traditions has you know, the, the, the monopoly on the truth is ridiculous. That is, uh, is what they say. Okay? That's his logic. The source and the stream. Okay? Yeah? Now, uh, so we should understand that we are uh, what we're up against. Now, I've here given already a whole explanation, Jiva Goswami's explanation, why we are, why it is divine. So I will not enter into that. But I just want you to understand that this is what they think, you know, and uh, we're dealing with that. Then I have some, so these were like fundamental issues that we are facing in our uh, presentation of the philosophy. And sooner or later, we're, uh, we're going to have to deal with this, you know, for regulated principles always is, uh, is good for, uh, for a controversy. What can you do? Uh, well, there is absolute truth and relative truth, right? So people may have relative truth, truth, right? But not absolute truth. Yeah. It doesn't mean that there are no elements of truth in other in other directions. And, but, you know, it cannot contradict, really, the absolute truth. And uh, it's not that others have nothing to contribute, etc. That's not what you're saying at all. Right? Um, and I don't come from, from there today. Today I'm just coming from, we are what we are. We are going to present ourselves to the world. And we have a package, you know, that, uh, of, of what is Hare Krishna belief. And now we're going to, uh, well, present it to them. And within that package, I've, I've listed a few elements that are like uh, a little sensitive for our audience and I just thought I'll just go through that, you know. Now, you're speaking about not so much the contents of what we're presenting, but you're talking about how to present, how to relate and, and to respect others also and to accept that they also have contributions to make and they do. And sometimes very deep ones. And, and a mature devotee should give people do appreciation and do respect who are of other beliefs, etc. And if we don't, then we are, uh, it's like someone in Amsterdam, um, what's his name now? The Christian man, right? The hair was knocked on the head. Do you remember him? Elder person is always questioned the issue. Anyway, he uh, used to say that uh, you are not a sect or a cult. But you certainly behave like one, and I thought that was uh, <laughs> that was pretty good. That's <laughs> like uh, I thought he was like uh, hmm. interesting. Yeah. 
Hoe heet die ook? Ben, Ben, Ben. Ben, 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 Ben. From Amsterdam. She knows him because she was an Amsterdam band. Some guy threw a brick, hit him on the head, and since that time, he's turned into half of what he was. It's kind of like really slow down, slow discipline. Almost there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have listed some issues here. I just wanted to go through this and then uh, things like no overpopulation. You know, we're supposed to sell this to the world. You know, like no overpopulation, right? Uh, you know, I mean, everyone thinks like we're insane, right? Come on, you know, you're off the wall. You're, you guys are bizarre, right? No overpopulation. You're crazy. You know, I mean, where did you get this one, right? So, but this is what we uh, are facing, right? This is what Prabhupada taught us. They did not go to the moon, another one, one solar system, you know, I mean, like, one solar system, my God, you know. Women less intelligent, well, you know, um, I mean, besides in our own movement, right? <laughs> Even in our own movement, this is uh, already tough enough. Right? But you go out to the world, right? And uh, you get in big trouble. The sacred cow, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah like you know, uh, the starving children, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know. But what if there is no food? You know, they uh, they should uh, give them the flesh of the cow. Uh, uh. Yeah, I know if you say that, that you're gonna open a discussion. Uh, let me just finish my list and then we'll open it up. I just give me less. Let me read number ten and then we're gonna open for discussion. Uh, because that was the last. Sati, you know, was my last one. Sati, right? That, uh, you know, the whole idea that it's okay that, that women just entered the fire, uh, you know, when their husband died, and that we kind of say, we can't, we're too weak now to do this, but this was actually something that's glorified, you know, like these are like barbarian practices which, fortunately, the British rulers, when they came to India, banned, you know. And now we're going to reintroduce these things as okay, you know. I mean, this is like, your movement is certainly bizarre, Mr. Yadu. <laughs> well, why is it so? If it is so, if it would be so, why would it be so? Can you, can you tell me that? Women are less intelligent. I mean, you know, I'm sorry to put it here, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't want to... I don't like this topic. I didn't like homosexuality either. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it's different. I mean, I could explain it in one way. I could say, well, first of all, we have to look at the, at the definition. It's a different definition because the definition that is used here, right, is that it's not a matter of the ability to think intelligently. But it is specifically be, uh, specifically about acting intelligently. So the Vedic uh, definition of, of intelligence always applies to action. One can think super intelligent and act dumb, right? Then one is dumb, right? So it's about action. So it's just prone to to follow the senses. Prone to follow a person who's less intelligent 
is not necessarily a person who doesn't have intellectual capacity. So intelligence and intellectual capacity are not synonymous in the Vedic definition of intelligence. But it's got to do with like not acting on on knowing what is better. Yeah, but that's what everybody does. That's what the whole world does. And in Kali Yuga everyone is listening to and that's what we're doing. Otherwise we would be Prema Bhaktas. You know. So it's in and there's another thing, you know, like where in this age I would say um, there are only women. Yeah? In one sense, you know, if you, if you go like that and say women are less intelligent, this that, then I say there are no men in this age. Yeah. There are no men. In that sense, everyone is less intelligent. Everyone is prone to the sensual platform. Everyone is is having high knowledge but not acting upon. I'm thinking. Um, at the same time, um, in our movement, uh, Prabhupada said it can be transcended. And women that are uh, that do act on the platform of intelligence, Prabhupada said to Vishaka, they are not like women. Yeah. They're not in that category anymore. It doesn't count. They're transcendental too. Yeah. So one can transcend and be intelligent. But being intelligent means act upon higher knowledge. So for all of us, we can all transcend it. But then you look at the statistics in our movement. And like, uh, you know, in, in terms of like upkeeping vows, well, it's not the greatest track record, that's for sure. Yeah. Just the things that come out to the surface, yeah. uh, the people that, that uh, speak about their problems, and then what doesn't come to the surface. So a lot of people are less intelligent because they're not following the high idea. Sometimes they say, you are a movement uh, with a great philosophy, but very little put in practice of it. That's, that's one criticism on, our, on ISKCON. Eh? A movement with, a, with the greatest philosophy, but uh, very, little, very little put into practice by its members. Okay, I've rattled off a lot of stuff here. Can we get some uh, input from the audience so I can rest on the on the broader topic of dialogue, um, we are glorifying it. We're not reintroducing it immediately, but our books are kind of, uh, in due course of time, uh, establishing it as a, as, as, as a very high uh, standard. So sooner or later, you get this that it will, you know, it will come back. But if we read some history about Rajasthan. Right? Just in encyclopedias, etc. It's going on quite a big scale, very big scale actually. And then it degraded into a thing where it was forced, but it was definitely, uh, you know, whatever I've read about it outside of our books, right? But in encyclopedias, etc., then saying, well, it was a substantial thing, even in the India uh, a thousand years ago. A thousand years ago, it was still huge. I don't know, because she was the wife of, uh, of Maharaj Prithu, who was in, uh, in Shakti Avesh Avatar, I mean. But she must have also been like uh, an expansion, therefore. But it's still, well, I don't know if every woman did it, but it's still, glor- it's still glorious. It was very glorious. Anyway, I mean, I think that 
uh, it may not have been something that every woman did, but it may also not have been something that was so exceptional. You know, it, looking at the, at the, you might conclude that from the Bhagavatam, but if you look at the, uh, at, at, the, at the facts and figures from encyclopedias of what was going on up to a thousand years ago in, in just Rajasthan, and so on, well, it was it was a widespread, substantial practice. And like, well, uh, sooner or later, you know, when the world, when the golden age begins, it's uh, yeah, in the fire you go. <laughs> What? You don't? She didn't do it, huh? She does a good job on the sati, doesn't she? <laughs> Very good. Okay. What? I didn't want to kind of uh, um, I just did my little exercise, you know, I sit down uh, with a piece of paper and I try to think of uh, Controversial points, right? You know, it's like you know these kind. Of, I did my little brainstorm with my own private flip chart, and I thought I did not bad, right? I mean, you know, it's like you can't think of everything. I'm sure there are more, and maybe Sati should not be on there. I don't care. No, I'm saying maybe yes, maybe not. I don't care really. I've, I've been just trying to. Uh, what I really try to do with this dialogue session is to kind of bring out the point that we have uh, a particular set of beliefs right, which we have to not only embrace ourselves, first of all, right, which may be, you know, uh, an exercise, right, it may be an exercise, and we've been speaking about this exercise in the last few days, and then we have to uh, socially all put it in practice in our society, in ISKCON, which is also an exercise we discussed yesterday. And now today, it's like here it is, you know, what I've called the package or what you call the set of beliefs that we have, our conviction. And uh, that this is what we'll have to talk about unavoidably. Yeah, unavoidably. I have a, a reader, which I wanted to make a copy available to the... To the College library, uh, so I'll give it for copying to uh, what's his name, Mira mm -hmm. um, With uh, yeah, where Prabhupada is preaching on certain issues and how he does it, what he how he preaches. Right? I mean, we have to preach what Prabhupada is preaching. We have to study this, and we we have to sooner or later we have to come out with the controversial points. And, and so we have to develop some expertise in ways around it, you know. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, I mean, if we're not so expert, then we're not going to... Uh, uh, we shouldn't overestimate our own power and try and take on uh, somebody who's bigger and tougher. It's just like a physical thing, you know. You're not going to... You're just not going to attack the big guy, you know, like he's twice your size, and you know, you're just a little more tactful, right? Like, yeah, like, uh, like Yadunandan is not so tall, and he has like learned in life how to speak very 
gentle, you know. Well, it's true. It's like it has been a, become a blessing. You see, if you whereas a huge big guy, you know, like maybe like, uh, you know, because he is like. Uh, He's used to everyone is immediately scared as soon as he walks in, so he, he doesn't develop the same diplomacy. Yeah. So I think in the same way, if we're dealing with a big, big uh, opponent, that we, uh, we must uh, realize our position. So to go for a professor, you know, you have to be quite uh, astute in, uh, in philosophy and in techniques and how to deal with them and even then you have to you know have a certain matter of politeness and you know like you can't just uh, go all out uh, with students right? well students uh, it's oftentimes so that uh, not the whole audience is into the debate it's just a few people you know two or maybe a uh, many of the people in the audience are actually thinking that the guys that are debating so much are extreme, right? So you can take advantage of this also. You can like kind of uh, isolate the groups. You know, it's like uh, even you can let them look more and more like bizarre monsters, you know, like they that they are, you know. And then the rest, and you get the rest of the audience on on, on your side. So you can use audience against each other also. Um, it's like. But that all takes expertise, I guess, and, uh, and practice and experience. Um, at least if one theoretically understands that these things are possible, then one can keep it in mind and begin to try and put it into uh, practice. Um, but some level of debate is really there, you know, in dialogue. It's like, and I think that, yes, we, we must be ready for that. We must be ready to, to face Pavlos, Pravidus kind of thing, you know, ready to battle it out. We, ha we have to, we've inherited this, we have to battle it out out there. The world's not just going to accept what we say without any argument. We have to enter into some argument. Yeah. 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 And it's like, you know, um Karma did this course here, last seminars, the Hare, what was it called? The Hare Krishna Challenge or something? Um, I forgot what it was called. My memory is really bad at the moment. Um, because I had a concussion. Um, but uh, and I, I didn't follow the course, but I just read some of the material. And uh, but he does. He, he works in that field, and he develops material. He develops presentations. He develops how to challenge, how to you know go after them, and how to confront them. And um, I guess you know we all have different natures. Right? Uh, some devotees like to preach in a manner of like to have dialogue in the in a sphere of debate. Others like dialogue in a sphere of cultivation. Right? So you can also find your forum for dialogue. And I also think everyone has his own forum for dialogue by nature. 
It's not that we all are meant to be in the same forum. Uh, but I, people in this course, of course, we are expecting that they will be able to uh, communicate on an academic level, on an, uh, uh, just in public communication, on TV programs, all these things. I mean, part of this course is to prepare people for that and that you're able to do this. So, therefore, you know, I may, I may have slanted my uh, presentation a little bit in that direction. But, um, no, I also don't like just debate, debate, debate. You know. And it's the fact that if you're speaking in front of an audience that is very favorable and very uh, interested, that you'll find you start saying things that you even, you get realizations that you didn't even know you had, you know. You say, you surprise yourself by what comes out of your mouth. Right? It's like, uh, like that. Uh, because when you have to speak, in front of an audience, uh, you have to really think about what you're saying and what you believe. You have to, uh, whereas otherwise you just accept so many things. But when you're explaining it, then you really start to think. That's the ecstasy of giving lectures because you kind of like really, really under the pressure of the situation and forced to formulate your ideas. Um, yes, well, uh, Vedic culture did allow something, but they never institutionalized things. Right? Even in India today you can see examples of that, like in Vrindavan, for example, you know, where I lived a long time, um, there we have the Bangis, the sweepers. So they are considered outcasts. Right? And it means that they are not following Vedic principles. And therefore, they are... Uh, now, in Vrindavan, uh, meat-eating is not uh, institutionalized. Right? It's not allowed. Butchers are not allowed. There's no butchers in Vrindavan. Right? No butcher shop you know, anywhere in Vrindavan. Not allowed. Right? Fishing in the Yamuna. Not allowed. Right? Not allowed. Um, slaughtering of animals not allowed, right? Except the sweeper class is allowed, and there are maybe there are a few Muslim families, right? and they have their, their celebrations once a year where they eat. It's called and they kill a goat, right? and that's condoned, right? Just for their own family, that's condoned, and the sweepers. They kill their own pigs. They keep pigs. And all these pigs you see walking around them, they, they, the sweepers keep them. They, they, they round them up and they feed them and they look after them. They take them to different places around to eat the garbage. They're not just walking around. The sweepers put them in places. And the sweepers, they eat them. Yeah? And there's one little lane, pig lane, where they are, uh, you know, kill a pig and they cook the whole pig on a fire. You can go through Pig Lane, it's a shortcut to the bus stand. If you want to go shortcut to the bus stand, you're late, you have to catch your bus, you go to Pig Lane and you see uh, pigs lying on fires, roasting there. Usually you, don't, you, you may not know that part, but I could show it to you, Pig Lane. So it's condoned, right? Certain things are condoned, but they're not like kind of uh, 
put as like a major, uh, given a major place in society. So what's going on in Holland is like, it's like, you know, it's just totally institutionalized, you know. It's like, yeah, this is it, you know, it's all right. It's what everyone should be doing, you know. It's like, and every, the whole country is like that. You have this the Dutch Society for Sexual Reform and like, you know, I mean, uh, are you not having these desires? Are you all right? You know, are you sure you're not interested in children, in animals, in, you know, in anything that moves? What's wrong with you kind of thing, you know? It's like, and then somebody who is, speaks on TV and tells all about it. And this was like, uh, well, 32 years ago, because I stopped watching TV 32 years ago. I don't know what's happening now. <laughs> I don't want to know either. Okay, um, let's see what else we have in the dialogue session. It's mundane. I don't remember this, actually. Oh, oh, oh. Um, it is interesting, a little article of Prabhupada here. Mundane forms of religion. Uh, it's about the famous story about the astrologer, uh, and who told this poor man that actually you're not poor, you're rich. Your father died in a foreign country, etc. And then uh, dig to the north, and dig to the west, and dig to the south, and dig to the east. Now, in this lecture, Prabhupada gives a different explanation of the ver of, of that of those verses than is usually given in, uh, yeah, in presentations. And it, uh, it all relates to different philosophies. So again, I don't want to uh, explain it now, but it just, uh, it's interesting, it's useful, um, it's kind of a nice, uh, it's something you can, you can use in, in preaching. You know, it's an interesting little diagram, and you can read it, you can present our philosophy nicely in that model. That's what it is. So it's a useful model. Um, I had here next on page 90 a little reference to the book of uh, of uh, Shiva Maharaj called the Bhaktivedanta Purports. Um, the point about that book is that, well, you know, Many people glorify Prabhupada's books, but we also encounter people who criticize Prabhupada's books. Many, right? Also, especially in academic circles, for, you know, not sticking to the original text, but giving his own inter interpretations and, like, uh, quite reading a lot in the text. And we all know Prabhupada reads sometimes things in the text that are not there, reads things into the Sanskrit, you know, this is the thing. So, like, uh, how to deal with this? For ourselves, first of all, you know, are the books really perfect? Right? Or that may not be so hard to believe, but at least for others, we have to be able to explain this. So Shiv Ramanch's book is super systematic. Uh, it says somewhere in the introduction that Maharaj has an engineering background and that these engineers, they work with building codes, you know, and like, uh, so it is like 1A and referring back to boy is it is it like a structure that he puts on there on the page so uh, one has to have a certain uh, mental patience to uh, to go through that whole structure 
to read the book even, right? So she's, she's already showing symptoms of sleep when I talk about it. The book tends to do that, right? It tends to kind of... Uh, uh, it's a little dry, the structure. But it's very important that we understand a little bit how Prabhupada's purports are giving the real meaning right, of the text. And that this, the so-called scientific uh, system is, is faulty. Right? See, the academics, like there is a Gita translation of Winthrop. Right? Winthrop. W-I-N-T-H-R-O-P. Winthrop. Right? Yeah, there's a Gita translation of Winthrop. Now, his Gita translation is like the most literal translation that exists. Right? He follows every Sanskrit word and just basically stick them all together into some sort of coherent sentence. Right? And he did nicely. It's, it's a good translation. But it's like... He doesn't read anything, you know, the whole thing is he doesn't want to read anything into the text. The text is what it is, and you are, and then you go with it. Now, this is the modern way of text interpretation. So, I've learned from Bhakti Rokhir, who has a degree in this, you know. Um, he is my uh, literary guru when it comes to these things. I don't know anything about it, but he does. And uh, his point is that in modern text interpretation, it's not at all relevant anymore what the text means. Right? It doesn't, there's no such thing as that a text means something. It's what you know the reader understands from the text, what the text means. That's it. Right? So the text is a thing in itself, and everyone is just kind of uh, uh, yeah, just relating to this text. You know? Really jiving with it, you know. Let's go for it. You know, like whatever it does to you, you know, that's that's great. I mean, it's fantastic. This is this is like, you know, this is bliss, right? I mean, this is like totally creative and like free and individual and expressive. And the text is just a means, you know, like a catalyst, really. Right? It brings whatever it brings out, it brings out. Right? So you know. This is like the religion of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the literary studies these days. This is their belief. This is like the ideal. This is, the, this is it. You know? This is the Jews. Yeah? <laughs> Whereas, uh, right, so the whole concept, you know, of like Bhagavad Gita as it is, right? Here is a particular text, and, and, it, and this is what it means. It's like already like presumptuous, you know, from that from that kind of philosophical outlook. Right? The very statement is presumptuous, so as soon as they read the title there, they already go like, you know, uh, very dogmatic, again, right? You know, dogmatic, presumptuous and dogmatic. He's presuming, you know, that there is like a meaning to this text, where it's like, huh? <laughs> okay. But and it's like, this is what lives out there, like that, that we should understand, see? So it's important, uh, that's where I'm coming from in this section of dialogue. I'm not going, uh, again, I'm not qualified to teach how to have dialogue, you learn it better from the communication people. Uh, although I have a few tricks, as you, you know, have noticed, I guess. 
you know. And I can tell you just a few tricks of, uh, you know, the man in the field, the farmer in the field, you know, Bushman's tricks. But, uh, uh, but the real thing is like, uh, there is a scientific approach in communication. But I wanted to bring out a few elements, you know, of like uh, uh, controversy that we could encounter, especially if we deal with the educated class of men, uh, which we're not used to. You know, we're I mean, not so used to it. This is not like happening so much in our normal temple atmosphere. We never encounter these things much. We don't think about it much. But since you're all kind of getting geared up to step into uh, universities and academic circles, uh, well, this is a warning for you. These things are living out there. These are the crocodiles of speculative theories that are in the ocean of nescience that Lord Chaitanya is warning about when even when an innocent child is trying to swim across, right? The crocodiles or speculative theories, right, which can devour us. Here they are, a few of these crocodiles. Right? So, yeah, again, it's my scarf that's in, inspiring me. No, no, uh, Winthrop, the result, it's a damn good translation. You can use Winthrop's translation. It's much, it, because... He doesn't read, uh, there's no purport, it's just a translation, and if you just want to kind of check, uh, get an idea of the structure of a, uh, of a Gita, of, of, of the text, of the text itself, right, it gives you a lot of insight in it. So if you, if you, if you put it next to Prophet's Gita, you read Prophet's Gita, and just to get a better feel for the Sanskrit, right, you know, because sometimes you have the... Uh, you have the, the Sanskrit text, the word for word, and then the, the translation. And sometimes you try to kind of look at like, how does this translation relate back to the Sanskrit? Uh, where is what? You know, it can be a little difficult, right? So Winthrop's Gita can actually be helpful. Winthrop's Gita is nothing wrong with it. He just, but I'm saying he did. He, the underlying philosophy of the of of the literary uh, world nowadays is. He did exactly what you should do. You know? he, his is the best Gita translation because his is just pure to the text and he reads nothing into the text. He would get an A plus for translation, probably would get a D. Right? Failed, you know, like not plus. It's like. Well, you read the text and you can see, like, you know, I mean, you can never look at Winthrop's Gita yourself. I mean, otherwise, Dr. O'Keele has it upstairs. In our library, we have a lot of books you guys don't have. <laughs> 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 uh, mm. Shiv Ramaraj's book comes from there, right? Now, what he is doing, he is basically proving that Prabhupada is not just taking the letter of the text, but takes the spirit of the text to the letter. Right? So it's not that he ever, ever speculates about the spirit from the text. No, the spirit of the text is like here in verse number 16 of the seventh chapter, this and this point is made. And therefore, we must read this verse in the 7th chapter in this context of that verse. 
that condition there applies here and therefore this word is not to be translated in the way it appears to be but must be translated as meaning Brahman means Parabrahman right? it means the supreme personality of Godhead and not the impersonal absolute all-pervading Brahman right? yeah? to give an example right? of what we know that Prabhupada does sometimes he, he writes supreme personality of Godhead in translation you don't find it in the text it's just Brahman that's a classical one, but there are many examples. Shiva Ramaraj has gone to the trouble of taking examples, uh, categorizing them, and dealing with the different categories and systematically giving an answer. And his book is an answer to it. And if anybody has that particular idea, then you can just give that book, right? And say, it's like, you know, here it is, you know? Like, I mean, if you really want to go to the bottom of it, this is our answer, right? But if you have to explain the answer yourself, then you could paraphrase it in what I just said that Prabhupada is giving the is giving the spirit of the text and not the, the not the translation to the letter of the text, but he's taking the spirit from the letter of the text. Right? Not reading anything into the text that is not in the text. But he reads the text, takes the spirit of the text, and applies it to the text. Which is the proper way of text interpretation? Superior, superior way. It is the only way. And therefore, the Vaishnava uh, explanation of the of Bhagavad Gita as it is 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 the only way to actually approach the text of the Gita. And your other way stinks. Right? <laughs> That's the bottom. Yeah. So it's an important book in a sense, you know, although, I mean, it's not so much a book for us as devotees to go like uh, go relish, you know, Shiv Ramaraj's book, you know, the Bhaktivedanta Purpose, Nectar, Bliss, wow, this is a fantastic uh, bit, like I'm really inspired now after I read this, you know, wow, it's, uh, it's dry, huh? but it's one of those books you should have, you know, as a reference book, and if you need it, right, you can uh, present the arguments. It's just something like forbidden archaeology. I mean, who has read forbidden archaeology from cover to cover, you know? I mean, anybody here? Right? I mean, it's unreadable, right? How, many, how much can you read about skeletons and skulls and bones found and the Java man, you know? And there was a, 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 a skullet which was found in one place and, and, a, and a bone 125 meters away from there. And they say this is from the same body, you know. Yeah? Well, maybe an explosion, you know. I don't know. But like, uh, oh boy. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like, you can't read it, but it's some sort of book. It's good to have in your, on your shelf. And if you write an article, you pull it off the shelf and you can just take some material. And it's a reference book, right? And... It's a book that you can just throw on the table as buff. Here is the proof, and okay, you know. And when you finish with this, talk to me again. And, uh, huh? It's it's a ton of bricks, right? You can drop on someone's head, yeah? and you say, you know, you read this. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, no, of course not. It disturbs the... But, you know, uh, they are really stirring it up. And many times people have no, uh, no good response to it all. It's, it's really... It's, they are... It is like a, they're storming the door of the scientific bastion, you know, like, like a big tree, you know, da 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 Well, um, we have five minutes left. All I can say is so, uh, my main approach is to kind of, uh, is faith, right, from a personal angle, uh, and when it comes to dialogue, I wanted to kind of deal with what we are uh, presenting. As you can see, in the first section, we went through these exercises of breaking things up in elements. There's still some examples on the wall there, and uh, I think that... Uh, uh, it's the only way, you know, to, to deal with faith, right? to see what are the elements that something is made up with, both in our uh, personal beliefs as in our communication, because otherwise you, you get stereotypes, it's all stereotypes, everything's stereotypes. But the more you see the elements and the more you understand how each of these elements make sense, the more uh, it becomes uh, acceptable to people, acceptable to ourselves, first of all, and acceptable to people. The more we can explain things. So we should be careful that we don't speak in like big commonplace terms and just throw them at people. And in the same way, we should do that to ourselves. Just accept, you know, these big concepts, right, without investigating the various elements and arguments in favor of it. That's the point. And this is what Prabhupada is doing. We so many times say it's repetitious, Prabhupada's books, but he is giving us uh, oftentimes an other angle on a particular form, on a particular point. And if you do like a little, if you want to do a little folio study on how Prabhupada is presenting the same point again and again, but each time from another angle. And if you make that like a paper, you know, and just write a paper on that, you'd find it an interesting study, right? Because you can see, like, the whole principle is to, you know, show how there are different aspects to that same point, and in this way, uh, to deepen our faith. So Prabhupada is actually doing it with his repetitious technique, because he's not re repeating exactly the same every time. Well, so this afternoon uh, we would like everyone to speak um, some some realization. We have uh, one and a half hours, which means an approximately ten minutes for everyone. And uh, it doesn't have to be ten minutes. If you're finished in five, no problem at all. And if there's time left, I can fill the rest, you know by now. <laughs> Easy. Uh, but, you know, you'll see so many people in one and a half hours. Like, you know, it's not much time at all. Because in between the cuffs, in between, and walking from one chair to another, and 
you know, so, so much is, is, is not much done. And uh, in these realizations, uh, you may just have the realization that uh, that actually you had faith all along, and that you uh, didn't have any, any um, you didn't feel a need for reinforcing your faith. Great, great realization. <laughs> Whatever your realization is, there must be a realization. Right? One realization could be like, well, uh, it didn't touch me at all. Right? It all just didn't do anything with me, of course. Okay. Uh, great realization. <laughs> I'd be interested to know it. So whatever, whatever uh, your impressions are, uh, anything you remember, anything that impressed you or didn't impress you at all, that's what I want to do. What? 3.30. Uh, 3.30 to 5. Uh, Five. I want to jump in the car and just drive away. Luggage already in the car and just not a minute rested. Yeah, the essay. Correct, correct. This was an announcement on the essay. So since our uh, coordinator, Yadu, uh, Nandan Prabhu has given us more time for the essay, it's very good. So uh, work on it. Uh, let Tatvavit uh, look at your essay and uh, don't just ask uh, advice on uh, basic uh, on form but also ask advice on contents okay? For, I mean like I mean I heard yesterday I was walking past yesterday I heard Tatvavit say in this word you know and was, I think well now we're doing form editing but uh, Invite him also to look at your essay in terms of contents and let him advise you a little bit, like if he feels you covered the thing, if you balance this stuff, because um, he's good at it. And, um, because I think we're trying to produce something that we can publish. Yeah? We're not just trying to produce something, you know, to see if you can write an essay I mean, that you already did in the first section, but in this section we're, we're, we're functioning like a study group who try to produce something for the world and we may as well, you know, do what every writer does, right, in this case. If you would be writing something normally on your own to publish, you would also do this, right? You would just, you know, everybody does it, you know. I didn't do it for this. And that's why it's so crude and rough, because I had no time. It was, this is just a rough draft, right? Um, I don't know if the book will ever follow, but you know, I'm, I'm dreaming about it sometimes. But I'm not sure if it's a pleasant dream, so I have to think about it. Um, so try to think like that. You're publishing something. So you take all the help you can get before you put it out there to make sure you got the philosophy right, to make sure you got the concept clear, to make sure you haven't overemphasized one side and underplayed another side, you know, to make sure that you don't put your, your audience to sleep with a long winding explanation of something that really could have been done a lot shorter, right? Uh, to make sure you, you 
got something exciting in there, something a little, you know, a little juicy, something a little different, something personal, something, a nice story, something, definitely, it's going to be published, mind you. People are going to read it with your name under it. So, you know, okay? This is the worst uh, assessment you can get for an essay. People are going to read it. You don't get an A, B, C, or D on it. People are going to put it out there to the world. You know? They're going to read you and laugh about it and criticize it and say, oh, well, you know, typical students' essays, you know, like, well, what? You, know, you have to take it beyond that level. Of, it's got to have some authority of what you say there. You're, it's got to have some information that you're giving people. Not just the standard stuff everybody knows. There's got to be something. You gotta, why you do research? To give people something you don't know yet. Right? You know, it's not like you know you made notes from the Bhagavad Gita that everybody knew. Right? Uh, yeah, we know that. Yeah, nice article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Old hat. Yeah. Okay. You know, the reader's final comment, old hat, right? on this one, next, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, so, keep that in mind, and then when you're ready, send it to me. I'll criticize it, and send it back. <laughs> what? When should it be ready? I think Yadunandan, you you said when should it be done? You gave a time frame. Yeah. But basically, basically they have to finish it next week. Is that it, or when do they? Can you a date? A date? When? When? Twenty-second of December. It's all over. <laughs> Great. What, whatever will an unfinished painting will be ripped from your hands and put out into the exhibition to the world. <laughs> Whether <laughs> and if you forgot Krishna's flute on there, you're bad. Yes. Okay, 3.30. Thank you very much.